Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige podcast. This time we're talking about 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey, one of Stanley Kubrick's uh, many and alleged masterpieces. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're calling this a prestige film, even though it's got a lot of pulp stuff in it. It's about outer space. It's science fiction. It's got rocket ships and uh-huh. fantastic visuals and things. But like Green Knight before it, I think it uh, would do this film at the service to lump it in with the Star Trek and Star Wars and uh, yeah. your other space space operas. Uh, you the think that's a sound decision? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly support that decision. Uh, this movie was directed by Stanley Kubrick uh, from a screenplay that Stanley Kubrick collaborated with Arthur C. Clarke on, famous science fiction pioneer. Uh, it stars Keir Dule and Gary Lockwood. I don't know that I've seen Keir in anything, didn't recognize anything from their Wikipedia page, but Gary Lockwood probably is familiar to old school Star Trek, the old series fans. He was Lieutenant Gary. Or, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Commander Gary Mitchell from Where No Man Has Gone Before. He's the one that gets silver eyeballs and gains psychic power after being zapped by a cosmic ray and hmm. threatens to take over the Enterprise. Um, this was commissioned by Dr. John. You might remember him uh, from last year commissioning Lord of the Rings that kicked off the whole Lord of the Rings commission craze. Uh, he's back with 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, I want to just go right to his initial comments here. This is Dr. John says, I'm so excited to commission another film. Your fellowship, the ring podcast last year was the best birthday present I've ever given myself. And now I'm gifting myself one again. This time I'm giving myself a wedding present. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. 2001, a space odyssey forever changed my appreciation for movies. And sometimes I feel like I've been chasing that space dragon ever since. Can't wait to hear your guys thoughts on this incredible film. I've heard that Kubrick sought to create the perfect example of a different genre with every film he made, and I think he made the perfect science fiction movie with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Thank you for all the premium content during such a a tough time. I recently had a patient pass away after battling COVID-19 for five months, and I'd like to dedicate the pod to the too many that we have lost. Here, here. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Dr. John. Thank you for your support once again of our uh, project here at Bald Move. Jim, have you seen 2001 Space Odyssey and uh, what do you think of this film? Yeah, I've seen 2001 Space Odyssey. Not as many times as I've seen, let's say, Star Wars or any of those Star Treks that you mentioned. Because this requires, I think, uh, the viewer to pay a certain amount of attention and be in a certain mood. Um, It's it's a demanding movie. It's unlike those other movies, which you can just sort of sit back and watch with a bowl of popcorn so i've only seen it about i think this might be the third time i've ever seen this movie yeah i think that's about how many times i've seen it too okay because you're right this is like uh watching star wars to 2001 is akin to like king's island or an amusement park versus an art gallery of modern art sure i'm not saying that the latter is a bad time i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that like it's good time is entirely dependent on your mindset, your mood, how stressed out you are, how much time you have, um, et cetera, et cetera. So because this film is oh, a no. film that di- that, that, that doesn't what? bode well, because I'm extremely stressed out and I don't have any time right now. But shit, I enjoyed fuck. the movie nonetheless. So. Yeah, I, I think that uh, 
this movie is something that demands that you approach it on its own timetable and time. Like if you want to sit down at this movie and, and like a lot of us do grab our cell phone and kind of like fuck around on Twitter for the first 15, 20 minutes and wait, wait for something to engage you. You're probably going to look up <laughs> about 40 minutes in this film and say, what the fuck is even happening? This is dumb yeah. and a waste of time. Uh, on the other hand, if you put your cell phone in like another room and lock it away and turn off the lights and give yourself no distractions, you might really, really have a good time with this film. It's kind of like one of the more accessible and critically or commercially successful, like very hard art house films of all time. Yeah. So it's like, if you're going to enjoy one, this is a good gateway experience to that, you know, like something like really fucking weird and like something that doesn't really care if you get it or not and doesn't care if you fucking get bored during a 10 minute sequence of whatever. It's like you it's it's kind of a hard patience and uh, um, I don't know, maturity check because I don't want to mm. I don't want to make it sound like if you don't enjoy movies like 2001, you're a fucking stupid or uncultured or something it's just uh it's it's this kind of thing and it's probably a, a, a baby step towards this kind of thing so yeah i mean I, I would say like a lot of the art house stuff that i've seen i don't like um and this is not like that in a lot of ways though it is in some ways um it encourages you certainly to interpret the images you're seeing to figure out what's going on, but not in a way of like David Lynch, right? Where he's doing it all with emotional palettes and, you know, visuals that don't actually tell the story. They more just make you feel an emotion. This movie actually definitely tells a story with its visuals um, in a way that I appreciate. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's really interesting because I, that's one of the questions I had. Cause I, I knew, I know you like this film. You've talked about mm-hmm. uh, liking it a lot and you know, um, I hear what you're saying about it, having a plot and all that stuff. But like, I think this stuff is a lot closer to Lynchian kind of bullshit than maybe you're giving it credit for. And, and, and maybe mm-hmm. the reason that it's accessible is because it does have like, you know, spaceships and space and like, there's a re like, there's a reason for the flights of fancy, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, what's it look like to go through a wormhole? Fuck it. Who the fuck knows? It could be this. Uh, whereas yeah. like, you know, what's it feel like to experience the crushing grip of existential depression or whatever, you know, same answer, but also like, you know, why are, you know, it, it, it's that it, there's not as, as immediate reason or like there's nothing like trippy happening or something like that, you know? Well, um, yeah, and also that's a very, very small part of this movie. Like it's it's essential, um, and it, it you absolutely have to view that part of this movie to get what it's trying to say. But also, it's a shockingly small part of this movie. The rest of it is mostly just hard sci-fi, mm-hmm. but with not a lot of dialogue. Right, you're just kind of watching ships dock, and you're watching things rotate in orbit of planets, um, and you're seeing cool effects inside space stations as people walk around and maybe like technologies that wouldn't have existed in 1968, like video phones. And Oh yeah. That's that's the hard sci-fi. And and he takes his fucking time with that stuff and lets you just sort of feel like what it would be living in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to me is way more grounded than 
something like uh, Mulholland Drive, where it's it's about like <laughs> eliciting an emotion from the audience. Yeah, but I mean that's the it's it's so when I read so many re, um, contemporary reviews of Kubrick and Clark, they talked about how you know because the the book has a lot of explanations for the mysteries in this in this movie. Um, but they deliberately constructed the movie as something to be appreciated more on the like feel of a painting or a music thing, because like, it's like, I, I, again, I hear what you're saying. I don't, I don't want to push back on it too much, but like this movie does in, in uh, open with like 20 minutes of monkeys fucking around in a mud hole. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think there's a lot of like, there's a lot of hard breaks for people who are not here to like, kind of have their minds expanded a little bit. You know, like you're like, uh, I mean, Rock Hudson uh, famously walked, stormed out of the early screening of this movie being like, what can anyone explain to me what the hell is going on? Like, I don't think he made it past the monkey parts. So, like, it mm. is challenging is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do think you're right. It has a lot of things that, like, make people that might dismiss other things a little take it more seriously. The science fiction aspect, the like the aspirational aspect uh it's got one of the you know very first kind of like what if AI but evil like th- mm-hmm. this movie is just so crazy influential. Um, you know Kubrick sat down to make like what he called a good science fiction film, and this is what it looks like when someone just with a bunch of money and sheer force of will and talent invents entire new schools of like special effects. I mean, you know, I got yeah. And, and the, the remarkable thing is 90% of every effect in this movie is as rock solid as the day it was filmed. Yeah. Like uh, there's, uh, there are like a couple of scenes where I go, okay, that actor didn't quite pull off the zero G effect or, uh, you know, I don't know that we need to see 15 different color variations on, uh, a landscape shot that is clearly like the grand Canyon. But <laughs> other than that, Holy shit, this movie is perfect when it comes to effects. I can't tell that compositing was done. I can't tell where they put in a model. And this is 1968. This is 10 years before Star Wars would come out and And, revolutionize effects. This thing did it way before that. That's the thing is like, I've heard so much about how Star Wars revolutionized effects and did that. And I think bullshit it did because like it it certainly pioneered the blue and green screen compositing technique but standard Kubrick was like fuck all that we're going to do all the synchronized motor driven camera effects we're just going to do it all in camera fuck your compositing yeah. fuck your green screens get your mats out there get your models have them we, if we need a 60 foot fucking black set we'll build one if we need a set that rotates end on end it's like 100 foot tall we'll fucking do that too like it's yeah. it's insane and because it is all in the camera and there's no compositing um and he did things like when he's filming a zero gravity scene it's like well you got to obviously spend actors but that kind of looks weird or center of gravity you can always see the wires but you know what you can film in any direction you want so let's just film them from the bottom and you can't see the wires because they're <laughs> coming straight at their people like it's just really crazy shit like that and it's always going to look this good now yeah. It's not Guardians of the Galaxy, but like if these ships were like careening through space and weaving through astronauts, it's not that type of movie. What no, this it's a much more like, realistic depiction of space travel. You know, if you turn on NASA TV and you see mm-hmm. like a 24-7 cam of like the space station or like if you're watching them do a spacewalk and repair, that is what this shit looks like. 
which is crazy that like 50 years before it was happening. This is before we, I mean, honestly, this is the reason why people say this was the dry run to the fake moon landings because right. it looks so fucking good and looks what so much like what NASA gets up to in 2021 that it's, it's just utterly convincing. It is. Yeah. Um, the, the, the most impressive effect probably in this movie is the rotation of the space station as characters walk along it and they do it in a various number of ways, right? Like they do it where, okay, it's a giant set and you can, you you know, like your brain knows that, okay, there's some spinning happening to this set because there has to be because I know this was filmed on the planet Earth. Right. Um, but also there are shots where they do crazy stuff. Like I look at yeah. what they did in The Expanse. Um, you, you remember when they went to the heart of the, the drum or whatever in the Nauvoo, Nauvoo uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or slash Medina, Medina slash station, whatever. Yeah. And, and they have like this transition between gravitational points where like mm-hmm. they're going down one shaft and then it flips gravitation to, like the other way. And then they yeah, end up yeah, going yeah. sideways down another shaft, but that's down to them. Mm-hmm. They do that in this movie, I think, just with rotating sets. And it mm-hmm. is stunning. I can't believe how real it looks. There's a couple where like there's a stewardess that walks up the wall and like goes backwards into like a set that would be upside down from her perspective. And I'm like, OK, well, I, I can see how they're doing that. But there's this mm-hmm. one scene where a guy climbs down to a ladder and then walks to one of his crewmates that was previously on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, my brain broke. I'm like, I know that's exactly <laughs> what it looked like if you were stepping on the space stations, but I can't figure out how the fuck they did it. I did yeah. research. Apparently, Kubrick just strapped the other actor down that was sitting. <laughs> That's so he's awesome. hanging again. And as the set rotates down to meet the guy, you got this perfect. It looks like gravity just took a 90 degree angle. It's fucking it's fucking amazing. It's like there's a there's a scene where a wait, uh, a stewardess plucks. Uh, a, 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 it is just floating. And I'm like, there. yeah, I'm like, yeah, how did they do that? This looks like perfectly composited. And then because I'd forgot, I haven't seen this movie in like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting it to have aged and for some of these things to look bad. And I'm like, man, I can't even see the composite lines. And then she just fucking plucked it out of the air. And I'm like, I've seen people mess that up today, dude. (laughs) And it's like, and I get, you know how they did it. Was it strings? It was a a glass pane and sticky tape. They stuck a pin to a glass pane and kind of floated it around. And then she just plucked it off the glass. But since it was perfectly clear and shot with no angle and no glare, it looked, but again, and it's not a trick. It wasn't composite. It was just right there. It's it's yeah. And Kubrick really is a master of that, a master of light and shadow and reflections. And you can see it all over this movie. Uh, this this movie, even beyond the effects, the the mm-hmm. film stock, the 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 movie itself looks incredible. And Kubrick has used like all different layers of contrast with color against the black and whites with black against the whites and shades of gray. Um, he, the contrast in this movie is insane. I am really pissed off actually that I don't have, I didn't have for my watch, my good OLED big TV. Oh. I've got that packed away for the move. So I'm watching yeah. on this 40 inch that's across the room. That's like yeah. an LED with washed out black kind of shit. Yeah. It, this is the movie you want to watch on your OLED with perfect yeah. blacks because Man, it looks so it would look incredible on that. 
I will say this is the best copy I've ever seen. We watched this on HBO Max, uh, who has this. Yeah. I think it has several Cooper Quirks right now. And oh. it's a really good, like, 4K copy. Um, it looks very good and pristine. I have, I, I have a pretty, I don't have an OLED, but I have a, a pretty nice uh, TV with good black levels. And it was just, yeah. it's just gorgeous to look at. Like, I, I just can't believe, I can't get over how well the interfaces of this movie look. Like, mm-hmm. this aesthetic from a, like, a user interface is 2021. Yeah. You know, with the like primary colors, with the future, like this, uh, Kubrick invented a few fonts for this movie to make it look futuristic. Hmm. Uh, he invented some high res graphic uh, things just to make this thing look ahead of its time. And it does like even Star Wars that comes out 10 years later. That's the one thing that dates Star Wars. It's like computer graphics. Anytime you're looking at the fucking Death Star tunnels and stuff like that, it's like, he, I mean, it's it's. Some it's, it's not shit, but it's still you can tell it's it's but this stuff like they when you look at the, the control panels for like these pods and the mm. different computer interfaces and the cores and stuff, you know, like the house computer core looks a lot like what they will do on Star Trek The Next Generation. It looks a lot like what they do on The Expanse because this fucking thing invented that aesthetic. Right. And it's so, so good. And, and so that like no one no one's fucked with it since. That's the thing that Dr. John said uh, in his opening preamble here that really stuck with me. It's like this thing was it was defining for an entire generation of uh, science fiction makers. I mean, George Lucas is quoted as saying, like, this is the perfect sci fi film. Um, It's it's. Like, I've made a great film. This is after he made Star Wars, right? And it's mm-hmm. become huge and successful. And he's just talking about, like, I made a great film, but this is much better. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, yeah, I, I think of, like, how well it's held up for 50 years. And I look at this thing and I just say, yes, this was, in a lot of ways, the perfect sci-fi film. Um, and I, I struggle to think how you could do it much better. And some of the reviews of the time said the same, like, oh, he's, he's created definitive sci-fi and destroyed the sci-fi genre because there's nothing left to be said about sci-fi. And I, I don't think that's true. I think certainly one of the things that he doesn't quite get at here is artificial intelligence, even though mm-hmm. it's in the movie. I think he doesn't follow that down the paths that even today we have, we are starting to follow it down. Um, well, I think his years ago too, you know, right. Who, who could have seen this coming? I mean, computers it, certainly personal computers weren't even a thing mainframes were barely a thing in 1968 right this is a, a decade like, or so like how was originally conceived as a humanoid like robot and clark and and uh, when they're looking at it, like you know this is going to just be dated because this isn't what you know we're going towards these big mainframes and these big thinking machines this isn't and like they instantly saved this thing from being that much dated because they yeah. saw that the future of an AI is something is voice activated and always looking with the camera. It's not yeah. going to be anything that we'd recognize as human. And it's probably not going to have the same value. Like that's the thing, like even the little exploration of the ethical dilemmas that Hal mm-hmm. has and how it resolves it is pretty next level. Like contemporaneously, like Star Trek was doing the whole, you know, like this is my friend. Uh, he always tells the truth and I'm his friend. I always lie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Brains melt like and you know fucking Kubrick's over here with Clark doing this shit. Like yeah. it's so next level. It is. Um 
do we want to like is there a point to describing the story of this movie I mean I guess well, so like the, the idea is yeah. basically that humans discover uh, a device on the moon that points them towards Jupiter and they go out there to investigate is essentially the entirety of the story yeah, without giving a, away the plot points there is something that's un- unmistakably a manufacturer of some sort of intelligence other than human yeah. 400 million years old on the moon and when it's exposed to sunlight it sends a powerful signal into, into the direction of Jupiter and man being what we are we gotta go fucking find out what the hell's going on with that and, and there's a uh, preamble that makes you know contextualizes everything and, and kind of you know reinforces the things that Kubrick is trying to say with this movie and this the film is like this is could be easily a silent film too because yeah. there's the famously, the first 23 minutes of the film speech, uh, fe- uh, features no dialogue. The last 23 minutes of the film features no dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and in between, like, there's something like 90 minutes of, of silence in this like two and a half hour film. So, yeah. uh, and a lot of the dialogue is pretty super- superfluous. Um, you, it's somewhat challenging to follow the plot because they uh-huh. do not explain like why the things are happening. You have to kind of like, observe the dialogue, observe the situation and kind of intuit what is happening. Like it doesn't hold your hand. Again, this movie doesn't give a shit whether you like it or not. Um, but if you do, yeah, there's definitely a through line to be, to be discovered for sure. There is, but it's told in an unconventional pattern too. This is not like as much as it feels like a, you know, three arc story or a four act symphony or whatever he's going for here. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the movie doesn't like, do the the usual like setup, uh, you know, set set something up and tell you what's gonna happen, then do the thing and then tell you what happened. Like a lot of stories do. Yeah. This one, it's remarkable because that entire section in the middle where they're traveling out to Jupiter is kind of you don't understand like why they're traveling out to Jupiter. Yeah. Like why why are they going out here? What's I know it's connected somehow to this mission, but why? And then right. it's not till the very fucking end of like a 50 minute chunk of this movie <laughs> that they a, a guy comes on the screen and tells you why they're going there. And then it cuts away and it goes to something else entirely. So like, yeah, you that almost set up. It doesn't forget, exist in that part. You almost forget why you wondered in the first place when you get to the point where like suddenly there's this view screen that flickers to life and like gives away the ghost. Right. It's like what what the yeah like oh right oh yes i forgot that we (laughs) were doing anything but trying to escape the clutches of this uh ai um right yeah like it's there's so many really clever and inventive things i kept on thinking back to my experience watching pig because um pig is very much visually driven but like I called it like it, it's like it's just following the fucking rule book and doing it to perfection. Yeah. Kubrick is breaking every fucking rules. There is like you you will see pulse pounding action that is going at a glacial place uh, pace and it's filmed from the perspective of an astronaut's nutsack. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. The like like angles and, you know, points of view um, like like how you use music 
And, you know, like when like there's the stuff that like I think would be I I would just be so afraid that I was just thinking about making like some of the things where he's got this like horrifying music that's been that's been uh, getting growing in intensity and growing in intensity and doubling and doubling. And he cuts a scene. And as he cuts the scene, the music just drops to nothing. Mm -hmm. And like it, I would be afraid to do that because I'm like, oh, people are going to think the something fucked up. Yeah, but like Kubrick has this insane confidence that no matter what he does, that there's going to be at least somebody that's going to long go along with the trip and be like, all right, well, I don't, I don't know what the fuck this all means, but sure, I'll, I'll sit through the story. Like the idea that no, the people would be like, fuck this bullshit and walk out 15 minutes into something, like either never occurred to him or he just didn't give a fuck mm-hmm. because there's many moments where like I, you know, it's kind of like The Godfather, like. If you sit through the first five minutes of Godfather, you're probably in for the ride. If you sit through yeah. the first 22 minutes of the Monkey Nat Geo special, you probably will be in for the ride because you will have the requisite. All right, fuck it. I don't know what's going on, but we'll see that that this movie requires you to to give it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I, I talked a little earlier about like the visual contrast he uses with color and light and dark. Um, it, he uses it with the music too. You you kind of touched on this there. And that's the heart of of great music, you know. It's the the silence and the the noise, um, and, and that's really what you're playing with with music. Mm. And he plays with it here in the film to kind of match the visuals. Where, you know, he'll, he he does the realistic thing uh, that a lot of movies are kind of afraid to do, which is total silence in space, um, and that gives it like an eerie quality in a lot of ways when when you know that sort of Hal is up to something and you're stuck in space with no sound whatsoever, no music, nothing. Mm-hmm. You can't hear anything. It's, it's isolating in its own way. And he uses those contrasts when he'll hit the big notes, right? The da, da. Oh, yeah. But also, he'll give you 10 minutes of silence while a ship docks with, with another mm-hmm. ship. And it works, man. It, it it makes you feel like you're in that space with those those characters. Yeah, and I kept on thinking, like, what must have been like to be in a theater in 1968? You go in, you see this movie. It's got a poster. It's got a space station on it and spaceships flying. A 2001: A Space Odyssey. And you're sitting there at these monkeys. They find this monolith and this fucking demon possession music is playing <laughs> as they're like prostrating <laughs> themselves chanting, before yeah. and rolling around. And it's just like. Like, and maybe you're on, you've been smoking something funny or you ingested something. Like, what must it have been like? Because, like, you know, 2000, and t- we're sitting there 2021, and I'm sitting there, like, I don't see how they made that shot. Yeah. Like, I just cannot believe what it must have been like to be, see something this next level. Like, I don't even know how, I because, like, special effects are now so good that I don't know that we have we retained our ability to have our minds blown. I think the last time that no. collectively happened was when we all saw Avatar 3D. Like, fuck, I didn't know <laughs> shit. shit could be like this, you know? I never saw it. Uh, my my 3D, last one was Jurassic Park, yeah. But then 3D kind of, oh, yeah, Jurassic Park's a good one. Um, but, like, I don't know that we have many more of those eye mind-blown moments left in us. Maybe when they get, like, a neural jack or something. But yeah. this must have been one of the all time like, what the hell am I seeing? But people don't Just, talk about it in those terms like they do with Star Wars, right? Star Wars was the movie where everybody goes, wow, I can't believe the effects that they've pulled off. Maybe because it's it moves faster, right? It's action packed and those bet, effects yeah, are harder to pull off in that environment. 
Yeah, 10 times the number of people saw Star Wars that saw 2001. Right. That's the thing. It's like, even though this was very successful and popular, it wasn't, you know, like, no. it was before an era where they called things blockbusters because people would form in lines like the, the popularity. They can't be compared. But like, yeah. that's the thing is like, yeah, all my life I've heard like this like watershed moment of Star Wars. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I was in here and that the ship roars overhead. I'm like, well, then you weren't here for 2001. Because yeah. like it's doing everything that Star Wars did, except for Star Wars was the music was supporting. Like um, that's another thing of this this that, that that Kubrick had one of his long term film collaborators set uh, and composed a beautiful score for his film, and at the last minute he threw it all out and went with his temp tracks, which were these old classical pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I guess didn't tell the guy because the story is the guy <laughs> the composer sitting there in the the theater and he's like fifteen minutes in like. What the fuck? Where's my music? Like <laughs> oh, no. Kubrick, what an asshole, man. Like what 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 a giant asshole. Can we just say that? Like I, yeah. I can't imagine treating a long-time, I guess, friend and collaborator that that way. But it's absolutely the right decision because if you had somebody underscoring the movements of what these chimps are doing, or if you had someone like trying to get us invested in the excitement of a spaceship docking or the vista of a of a lunar moon base or whatever it wouldn't be the same as this other film music like roger ebert in his review said that like classical music um has its own pace and it's as many notes as it takes and you can't speed it up and you can't slow it down it is what it is and tying Mm -hmm. the scenes to those tracks grant the visuals the same grandeur of like well you know takes a long time to synchronize two bodies in space and dock them together. Uh, yeah. And I want you to think about that and mankind and mankind's achievements kind of like it's all subconscious and, but it, but it works. Or at least if you, if you grant it the space in which to work. Yes. And this all ties into the main theme of the movie, which I hope we will get to soon. Cause I'm sort of itching to talk about it. Uh, sure. Do you want to? I mean, we can continue to talk about the 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 glorious visuals of the film, but uh, yeah. I mean, th- there's another one that's kind of cool, um, which is a transition point between the the monkeys. Uh, it was what I'm going to call them. I know they're you know proto humans, um, not monkeys per se, but I'm calling them monkeys. Um, where they throw their tool up into the air and it transitions yeah. to like you could say the culmination of all of humankind's tool making in a spaceship that's orbiting the earth mm-hmm. um that's rougher than i remembered it being not not like yes. oh it looks bad but it just doesn't i in my head there was this immaculate transition Seamless. which is a slow fade out between the bone as it spins through the air and perfectly overlaid with the ship that doesn't fucking happen it just smash no. cuts from a bone sort of sideways off frame to a ship that's not really oriented the same but Isn't vaguely bone shaped I had the exact same mental image of that scene that was just a seamless dissolve and you clearly yeah. got, oh, that that's the start of man's tool. And this is the ultimate achievement of said thing. Right. But no, it's a rough, rough <laughs> ass cut. It doesn't sure even is. line up. No. The objects don't even line up. Yeah, no. But, you know, it gets the point across. I think it, it yeah. would have it would have been better had he tried to transition that a little uh, more neatly. But whatever. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other, I guess, before we get into the main theme, I, I want to talk about in terms of this uh, being influential, um, mm-hmm. you know, telecommunication, uh, the fact that like this, this film was the first one that I can be that I'm aware of that dealt with like lag and 
uh, communication across vast distances. That's a plot point that yeah. takes like seven minutes for messages to get back and forth to the spaceship. Uh, suspended animation. Mm-hmm. Like this is one of the first times you see this in film. Um, and it's, I think, used a pretty good effect, pretty uh, horrifying, horrifying effect. Um, the spacesuits. I'm convinced after seeing this movie that Lego was heavily inspired <laughs> because yeah. like, why are they primary color? Why do we have rainbow colored spacesuits? I don't know, but they're fucking cool. And they're uh, very modern looking. Like if you look at a SpaceX suit, it doesn't look a ton different. And this might be, you know, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy thing, right? Where they like a tricorder being a flip phone or whatever. Well, the, yeah. the tricorder didn't like predict the flip phone. The flip phone just copied the tricorder because it's a cool design. So maybe well, SpaceX like I, is doing that. Um, yeah. Um, well, I heard that like one of the reasons these designs look so solid is because uh, Kubrick went and instead of like going into like pulp magazine uh, illustrators and things like that, he went like the Ralph McQuarrie. He, he went to find people that were like working for popular mechanics. Gotcha. And, you know, those, those you know, remember engineers those engineers and yeah, 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 yeah. Where you're like, you know, cities of tomorrow, what's it going to look like? Or what's the moon base? And like actually using these con like almost NASA concept art to hmm. develop this stuff, which is why, you know, it looks like. But I also wonder if it's a little bit of the tail wagging the dog is like, do a lot of ships nowadays or spaceships look like Kubrick shit because that's just the way they look or does it look like that yeah. because everyone grew up watching Kubrick inspired shit? Exactly. Uh, probably a lot of the latter. I mean, we've been copying star Trek for years trying to get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite the aesthetic, but definitely the form of, of what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, there's just, Oh man, like in the visuals, like when we get into Jupiter, the shit gets real crazy. There's like a gorgeous shot of like all the moons of Jupiter being in line with the planet with the monolith, with the space pod approaching um, mm-hmm. the scenes where we talk about the trippy visuals as you're going through the, the Stargate again, Kubrick with his uh, photographer developed an entirely new type of special effect called like the split camera dissolve or something where you essentially uh, black off half the plate and like lock, the the camera's uh, shutter open and in the darkness you just pass brightly lit objects towards the center of the frame and it looks like you're going through the star star tunnel. Gotcha. Um, they did what is the other stuff that they? Um, uh, Kubrick loves to line up celestial bodies in like an elliptical plane and just shoot, mm. you know, across that. And I don't ever see sci-fi do this. I don't I don't know why. Mm. I don't know if it's because it's not physically possible. Like shit just doesn't line up this way. And right actual space right but he loves to do that and especially that shot um out near jupiter where he's got like six different bodies lined up and you've got the monolith kind of coming through the frame uh mm-hmm. and then that's all like perfectly symmetrical down a center line in yep. the frame it's a really visually striking image i just don't ever see other sci-fi do that because he's trying to be he's not afraid to go spiritual like he's not afraid to like connect this to like you know um mysticism and astrology and mm-hmm. uh things like that like to make this and i think i mean part of it is probably yeah because the, the thing is is i also saw that in his scientific rigor he got a few things wrong like the moon the earth is very pale in a lot of these shots because he looked up to earth's albedo I think that's how you pronounce it, which is essentially how much reflectivity a surface is. The, the higher it is, the more bright, the lower it is, the more dim. 
Mm-hmm. And apparently that's an average. If you average like mm. the the ground and the ocean and the white cloud covers, but like individually, yeah. like the whites and the ice caps really pop on earth and the blue of the ocean really pops. So like sure. earth. And he also um, thought that the atmosphere would obscure the continents and stuff. So like uh, the earth's like ground is painted, but we now know that like, you know, the atmosphere is like paper thin. Yeah. You can see right the fuck through it. Unless there's a cloud over, you can see mountains and shit from, from literally space. So there's mm-hmm. a couple things he got wrong, but we literally had never gotten up there with a color camera before and <laughs> seen what it really looks like. So, yeah. um, I, I just thought that was that even like sometimes trying to be super scientific can like, uh, you know, lead you in the wrong directions. Also, I've forgotten that this is the first the first uh, naked vacuum spacewalk I've ever seen depicted in fiction. Right. And yeah. the one thing you, if you've seen late seasons of Expanse and a couple others that we've, you know, Star Trek Next Generation, uh, you don't want to hold your breath. Uh, apparently, that's 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 not what you want to do. Make your lungs explode. But, you know, yeah. Dave here takes a deep gulp of breath before the, because again, who the fuck knew they hadn't actually done mm-hmm. the experiments and 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 been up there to to see what actually happens? Uh, there are a couple other technology based things I'd like to talk about, um, and maybe the last of those can sort of lead into the themes of this movie. But zero G toilet looks complicated as hell to use. I don't know how many instructions you need to use a zero G toilet, but there's a wall of them here. The picture of the guy like. Considering them with like hand on chin and furrowed brow. Like how bad uh, do I really need to go? It, I can hold it to the moon, right? Right. <laughs> right. Uh that was wild. And and then the you know, the the video phone, just the idea of like a video call to someone. Not not even like taking into account the delay, but a, a video call is is something that in our modern society we are coming to rely on more and more, especially right now. Oh yeah with zoom yeah. calls and whatnot. And I imagine that will only accelerate in the future. Um, and then like the big one, the big one that I'm surprised, I guess at how not, but both prescient and not prescient. This movie is when it comes to artificial intelligence, because they depict a general, a fully functional general AI in this mm-hmm. movie, which I think is ahead of its time. I'm, I'm sure other, you know, n- novelizations of, of things have certainly depicted it by now, uh, by, by then rather 1968. Um, but in cinema, I don't think it was much of a thing. And this might be one of the first depictions of it ever. And, and I'm also dismayed by how little it takes into account the progress that would be made. Um, and also how fast I think it's going to happen. So 1992 is when they say how was brought online. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know if this is, you know, the, the lunatic ramblings of a dying consciousness or what, and it's just trying to like defend itself with like giving a false birth date or something. But mm. yeah, this movie thinks, uh, 2001, we're going to be doing all this space shit with general AI and 1992 is when it was born, but also it doesn't take it far enough. Like here, here's where it meshes with the themes of this movie, because to me, the end of this movie gets the fundamental evolutionary path of humanity wrong. It, now it's accelerated artificially, right? I, I, I don't want to say like, Hey, this couldn't happen because if we dug up some, you know, you don't know item that, yeah, we, we could go to the moon 
could be a monolith and Tycho crater, sure. Yeah. yeah, and we could dig up something that points us to Jupiter and sends us out through a, a wormhole, and suddenly humanity has taken a dramatic boost forward in its mm-hmm. physical form, right? And that's that's where I think like the movie doesn't contemplate the power of information and and transitioning humans to an informational form, which I think is certainly where our society is headed in 2021. Yeah, I feel like a lot of science fiction got a couple things wrong. Like they thought AI would be easy and automation would be hard. Like Hal has Hmm. remarkably little control over the ship. Um, yeah like once once dave puts a suit on it's game over because all hal can do is essentially open up the airlocks maybe to fuck with him he has no way to interact physically with his environment right um where it turns out to like it seemed like automation is the trivial problem like if you want to make a machine copy a human doing whatever dancing doing heart surgery neurosurgery like name the most complicated yeah. thing in the world you can have servo motors do that with precision no problem look at but what gener- boston dynamics is doing fucking <laughs> fucking a man shit. and look what they've done from tint like you know we're all like ha ha i can't even step over a box to like these thing- things are fucking boogieing down now yeah but what's hard is generalized intelligence for sure um and i feel like that's consistently like even that's the thing that's uh, somewhat unrealistic about the expanse is the fact that they still have like human piloted chips when we're on the cusp of like, you know, robot uh, piloted cars and within a hundred years, I don't think there's like, it will be an eccentric kind of hobby, kind of like in the way sailing is or parasailing to like drive your own car or fly your own plane. Maybe seen, seen as dangerous uh, uh, risk seeking. You have to have special licenses and clearances to do. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just, that's the one thing they just did not get, get right in this movie because Hal is essentially impotent once once uh, the protagonist is on board with the spacesuit <laughs> and the idea that humans would be going out to Jupiter in the first place. I'm not, I'm not mm. sure why we need stasis uh, to send humans on long journeys when we could at some point in the future, especially if you have a generalized AI, we've essentially created yeah. new types of people, which is what this movie is expositing at the end of the film through star child birth and shit. Right. It, we've essentially already done the star child thing. It's just, we haven't named it such. We haven't like, like we have prepared ourselves. We've created an offshoot of humanity that is just as smart as us, potentially smarter. And we've sent it out into space. That is our star child. I don't know why we need to, to evolve out of our physical form in a like meat space kind of way. We could do it through our technology, through our information and humanity can sit on this rock and exert its influence throughout the the galaxy simply by turning themselves into information. Well, there I I think that um, in 1968, in the middle of the space race before we land on the moon, like it must seem pretty crazy in 2001 that we're still so earthbound. But I think that yeah. that that is exactly right because like NASA's long figured out that like you really don't want to send people there there are shittier so versions hard. of the machines that we can send that are far more expensive and you have to take some so much just the fucking water you got to right. send to a place the, that, air. Uh, it's... the things that they have to the, the require to survive that you don't have to worry about the robot and i feel like they're the zero g like, toilets <laughs> the idea that like Hal would get out to jupiter and all he'd have is this, this little shitty webcam and these little t-rex arms and that's yeah, all he yeah. could do like they didn't see like the fucking shit that we would have 
nowadays uh, where we have a helicopter. There's a helicopter. There's a drone with blades uh, hovering in this, the atmosphere of Mars right right as we speak. I don't know if right now it might be charging. But, you know, that's that that shit is, is crazy. And it's it's clear that they it didn't. That they, they just they didn't see that. I thought here's another anachronistic thing. Um, the humans just confer per, full personhood to how without question. Yeah. Like, well, I've, you know what? I've never really given it much thought about whether he has feelings or whatnot. But, you know, he just seemed like another crew member to me. And uh, I, I talk with them. We play games and like there's none of this. Whereas in real life, people would be fighting that status tooth and fucking nail. And like the reality is we'll yeah. have functional human equivalent general purpose AI long before people like it's an accepted fact that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then our our legal system would support such. Yeah, yeah I guess it, they must have passed like what the Langley test. I think it, it said that it was taught by oh. a, a dude named Langley. I don't know if that's the same Langley. I, I seriously doubt it's the same Langley as like the uh, military base or whatever. Oh, um, yeah. The Air CIA headquarters. I don't know what what it is in Langley. You know, I think that uh, that is interesting. I also saw that. Um, one of the IBM's first things that they did is they had one of their mainframes sing Daisy. There's like a oh, really? there's like something from the late 50s, early 60s where one of their first like transistor things, what they had to do is had it sing that song huh. and Arthur C. Clarke put that scene in where like Hal's literally regressing mm-hmm. through his adolescent because he's losing it. Like he, he's going back to like the very first iterations of him back in 1950 that were taught to sing this thing in this, this lab and bell labs or whatever. Uh, and That's he's like, cool. yeah, this will actually put some real history behind it and they'll feel him. I'm like, yeah, you know, I didn't know any of that, but like, I think that kind of comes through mm-hmm. or it's just like sometimes like uh, we've talked about this before, like um, there's certain projects and I, I've, I know I've talked about like Breaking Bad or like Lord of the Rings broadly where like everyone in that project was so invested with all of their being mm-hmm. that like they just all, you know, in the in the costuming and the set and the location scouting, like everyone sweated every detail to where it becomes something that's even more like there's it's a such a work of like utter, you know, realness um, that you don't get on like things where people are just like, you know, ah, I'm just doing this for a job. <laughs> right. Um, and like, I feel like that happens, but uh, usually that's a, that's that's when you get a whole bunch of humans like on board with your design. This just comes from Stanley Kubrick. I, yeah, he cares <laughs> enough for everybody else involved. Yeah, like the director of photography was like bitterly complaining on this project about like, I just feel like I'm a tool. Like, you know, this guy tells me how these things should be light lit and where everything should be. And I go in there and if it's an inch off, he makes me redo it. And like, but yeah, this guy, he is just like single minded and maniacal about getting everything right. Another thing that came out of the director of photography is apparently there's 200 times the amount of footage that made it on screen that was shot. I bet it's, it's the only way that the maniacal, uh, drive and also, uh, you know, that, that sense of control and also probably 200 times the, the feet of film is exactly what you need to get shots. Like rotating hallways that then intersect with other hallways. Oh, that yeah. Two actors have to step onto at a perfectly synchronized, the synchronization it takes between the actor 
the cinematographer, the people rotating the set, because I seriously doubt it was rotated by machines. I mean, maybe, sure, maybe, yeah, although to get that precision, it might have had to be. But that precision <laughs> required. Yeah, you have to be a maniac to get that to look no, as, you- as rock solid as it does. And it seems like also Kubrick had this, uh, you know, it's like, well, if we still have light, let's do another shot. Or if we still like for uh, famously, hmm. it wasn't until they ran out of bones to smash that he was satisfied that they had enough bone smashing material. It's like, look, we just smashed wow. our last skull, Stanley. Do you want me to go get another rack of skulls? And ah, nah, I guess this is this. We, we pro- But the real crazy thing is there's only 17 minutes of cut footage anywhere in the world. Because Stanley Kubrick ordered all sets, all film, all blueprints for the construction of this stuff destroyed. Well, that's just stupid. Because what he what he was afraid of, and he's probably right, is that like if any of this stuff survived, it would um, show up in lesser works. Like oh, you like 2010 see... or 3001. <laughs> hey, hey, that's that's not a terrible movie. Actually, I haven't seen it. I can't say. Um, but... Uh, Arthur C. Clarke worked on those things and they have some pretty nice big ideas. I actually, I was thinking about pitching you watching 2010 just so we could talk about it. Huh. But, yeah, uh, I'd be down. Fuck. Oh, he didn't want like in 1985 some shitty spoof version of his of, of this to like show up and like people see the, you know, blue spacesuit and like, oh, oh, that's, you know, he didn't want his stuff to be used in a lesser works to degrade. He wanted these to be singular. And I kind of get that. But on the other hand, Jesus Christ, I want the Blu-ray that has all these cut scenes and like expanded things. And, you know, like I want to see the test where they actually had aliens. They shot aliens in those final scenes. Um, but Stanley Kubrick hates cosplay. Well, I mean, he would have <laughs> if he had to died before the shit got invented. But yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I, I wish I wish that there was more. I, I completely understand why he had that done. But yeah, I wish there was a lot more. That's the the memorabilia and kind of like behind the scenes stuff. It's all oral history at this point. Um, I mean, it, I guess I don't know. That's stupid to me. Like we've always talked about how remakes or sequels or whatever can't take away from the original work. Right. To me, the matrix is still like a damn near perfect movie despite revolutions and reloaded or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Kind of blowing. Yeah. Not, yeah. not being nearly as amazing as the first one. Uh-huh. They, they can never take that, that, original matrix away so i don't know if who cares if somebody gets a hold of your props and makes something inferior you didn't make something inferior why do you care man but that's ah man i i don't i would it'd be interesting to see what kubrick would say to like why do you care because you know like his all of his films are about him caring to an excess um and only about his own vision like Mm -hmm. not caring about really what people Although I guess he did like, you know, it wasn't like he was immune to criticism. Like when they first I think when they first screened this movie, it was uh, three hours and 50 minutes long. And, you know, like that was the that was the print that like Rock Hudson stormed out of. And I guess he cut like before the studio even asked, he cut like 21 minutes out of it and eventually got trimmed to what it is today. It's two hours and like two two forty, I think, is what this movie is. Um, It's tough to say two two twenty nine is what I see on IMDb. And mine it's was like, like 220 something. The thing is, is I watched it in two chunks because um, yeah. I didn't want I, I I wanted to give myself a little bit more time to do. So I watched it and I forgot that there was an intermission. I'm like, oh, this is handy. So I watched it one night. I watched the intermission and watch. It's hard for me to say, like, what the experience of sitting through this movie feels like, because I know, like, uh, 
the first 25 minutes happened and I looked at my watch and I realized because I would if you'd asked me, I said that was probably about 10 minutes long. It's almost 25. Hmm. Like the movie does a pretty good job of casting the spell. And that's the thing. If you're yeah. the type is like looking at your watch while the ship's docking or while they're flying out to the dig site on the moon or, oh, my God, the like the dig site itself is like five minutes of these guys crawling down the stairs to this crazy demonic orchestra happening. Um, it's cool. Then, I, I like that shot. It, yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, I do it's, too, but it's like, I don't. OK, like, why is Kubrick? Why is he holding these scenes for so long? Uh, well, in like, this one. Well, OK specifically why so long i couldn't tell you on some of the shots the the stuff that makes sense to me is like the docking sequences and things that just would take a while right space travel is slower than you would expect um for things that are traveling at multiple tens of thousands of miles per hour Mm -hmm. um so in those instances i get it because you want the audience to feel like the astronauts feel um other times, I'm not sure. I don't know why we need so much of the wormhole sequence. It's a lot. Um, and it's it's not varied enough, in my opinion, to make the extra worth it. Though, there's probably some justification for it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think you're supposed to understand it's like an alien intelligence attempting to... I mean, it's hard to say to because, him? like, I mean, to, to what, analyze what him? what did the monolith do to the monkeys that made them uh, suddenly being able to appreciate the value of, you know, leverage and a fulcrum and how you can put, you know, use that with a stick or a bone to cave someone's skull in. Like, I think you're supposed to understand is like when whatever he's going through is similar to what the monkeys went through in the beginning of the film. Yeah. And the other thing is like those monkeys see themselves as a pinnacle mm-hmm. of what, you know, if, if, if they could even process like they, you know, right. look like we have, we are the fucking Lords of this planet. Right. Mm-hmm. But what they really were, were the embryo of humanity. Yeah. And there's very clearly an, an illusion being made at the end of like, we ourselves think that we are the masters of the universe. We're splitting the atom. We're traveling space. We planted our flag on the moon. And yet, uh, from from these other intelligences perspective, we this we what we are right now is the embryo of what we may become. Um, yeah, and I think there's other things in the movie that reinforce that. Um, that moonshot is certainly one. Uh, they they line up all the people like the the monkeys at the watering hole, right? Um, oh, and the moon is in the like the eclipsed moon is in the same part of the sky as the eclipsed uh, Earth is, and the huh, okay, like e- even the even the way the astronauts are acting, like walking around it, touching it, mm-hmm. like is very similar to the monkeys. Yeah, and then there there are things in other parts where like I feel like the small talk in this, where like uh, who is it? I, I don't remember his name, but the guy in the suit who's coming to give a briefing out mm-hmm. on the moon somewhere. Um, yeah. he gets onto the space station, which I think is like a Hilton space station, which was interesting. Got a hojo. It, they got a hojo inside. They got it, yeah. a hojo in the in the place. <laughs> uh, and he meets up with some I don't know flight attendant looking people. Another uh-huh. dude in a suit, and it's just like small talk about like their kids and whatnot. And then at the very end, they ask a question. To me, it's like this small talk is reinforcing that theme too, where like the they're connecting the dots between this 
pretty cosmically meaningless uh, conversation that he's having with these people and the sort of cosmically meaningless-ness of humanity uh, as well, especially as when compared to this intelligence that you see at the end and as cosmically significant as they must think themselves to be. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, ultimately might also be just as meaningless as humanity. We don't really know. But yeah, I think they're doing a lot of stuff stuff to reinforce uh, just through, you know, showing long scenes of, of people just small talking. Do you also think that like, uh, I think there's a deliberate contrast between how I almost want to say shitty the human performances are, um, but like maybe yeah. stilted or wooden or mm-hmm. robotic and how like expressive the howl is like how move beg you know begging for his life is as moving emotionally as this fucking it's the most moving thing that happens in this movie emotionally yeah easily it's got to be a clear con like that's a because i i know kubrick knows how to get performances out of people i've seen movies where people like it's it's i've been on a kind of a rough run with kubrick lately you know filling in some of my gaps um but like he's yeah. he's definitely shot things that uh, had actors feeling in a certain way and, and and it was the way he wanted them to to look on camera. So when I see this like god awful scene of this guy calling his his daughter and negotiating some kind of like bush baby present from the moon yeah. and that's that's the thing where like I'm trying to look at my clock like why what the fuck am I what is this just selling us about like space life? I think it's a deliberate contrast to Hal's humanity you know mm-hmm. like Hal is afraid in this movie Hal is embarrassed Hal is unsure of himself Hal is caught in like a moral and ethical conundrum and none of the humans go through anything remotely like that I thought that was really interesting yeah. and something I I noticed now that I'm watching this kind of professionally rather than just like oh fuck this is a trippy ass movie yeah, no, the the speech patterns there with Hal are interesting because I, I get the feeling when he's starting to n- not quite beg for his life yet or its life. I, I don't know what to call Hal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, when, when it's starting to talk to Dave as Dave is approaching its logic cores and its memory right. cores, um, right. he's the, the speech patterns there are very much akin to something you'd see in Dr. Strangelove in the war room. I, I could see like, Oh, maybe you should yes. lie down. Maybe you should take a stress uh-huh. pill and chill out a little bit. You know, right. this this is uh, George C. Scott on the phone with, uh, you know, Yuri or whoever over in Russia, like talking to him, trying to calm him down. Mm-hmm. It's it, it feels very Kubrickian yeah. in its pattern, but then it turns into like an actual begging for its life. Right. Yeah. This is hurting me. I don't like it. I'm scared. Yeah, uh, you're killing me. Like, even if it's the thing is, is I, I kept on. I think it's interesting because it worked because it's kind of chilling because uh, the other thing, I guess, uh, Kubrick and, and Clark uh, worked on that 1982 date because they wanted um, I, I thought it was an 87 or because like the, 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 but they wanted the how to be about like a seven or like a nine year old child. Um, oh, OK, it was 92. Yeah. Okay. Um, they want they wanted to feel like a, a nine year old child. So it's like there's mm-hmm. something kind of like it's you know like so why do you think Hal did this? Because I think that there's a narrative in the movie that like I think this is one of those things where I felt like 
the third time I watched Godfather 2, shit's like the Cuba shit started clicking. This is the first time I watched 2001 where I felt like how going crazy kind of like clicked for me. Do you have a yeah, I don't operating know. theory of why I don't know he started killing crazy. people? Um, yeah, I yeah, think you're he's, right. he's you're on right. a mission and that's the primary goal. Um, and he sees them as threatening that mission, regardless of, you know, we as an audience might think that, well, Hal is is demented here. Hal is is doing things that don't have a justification. But in Hal's mind, it's the mission. I think that there's this line of dialogue where they talk about the purpose of the HAL 9000 system. Um, it's foolproof. It's incapable of error. Its primary purpose is the transmission of data without um, distortion or error. Mm-hmm. And I think its primary mission to conceal the mission from its human crew was like uh, an irreducible problem for it. Like, well, I'm supposed to transmit information correctly and without any kind of error, but I'm ordered to conceal this information, which is by definition not transmitting the truth. Huh. Uh, okay. I can't. So, like, and his, the way so he resolved it is like, yeah. if I kill the crew, and I'm in, like, it also they make it seem that, like, that he's perfectly capable of, of completing the mission on his own. And he's like, well, mm-hmm. if I just kill the human crew, then I then I no longer am concealing information and I can go back to being my true purpose. That makes I a lot of sense. And I, as I again, that is not in the script. That is it might be in the book because, again, it's like I've read the 2000. I've read 2001, 2010 and 2063 um, back when I was a teenager. But I don't know if that's I got that from the book or if this is something I've just watched after enough. But like that's the the that's the kind of uh, AI trap that he got himself into. Yeah, it's the um, kind of logical trap that you can't avoid, right? If even if you create an infallible system, there are there are logical inconsistencies that will lead you down conflicting roads. How do you resolve that? In this case, I guess it it made Hal look insane. Um, it yeah. made Hal look wrong, but only because we're looking from our moral and uh, ethical right. framework. Uh, all Hal was trying to do is balance his logic circuits, and I thought yeah. that was. When I was and so when I realized that I was listening, I was watching this and it's, there's a lot of irony, like uh, when he was killing Dave and Dave was trying to, like, talk himself out of it. Uh, Hal was with the Imperius. You know, there's no point in this conversation any longer. Dave, goodbye. You know, mm-hmm. when Hal's trying to talk himself out of the pit, like, oh, suddenly the conversation's time to go back on. And I kept on thinking. Is Hal actually afraid or is Hal trying to make the astronaut feel guilty so he stops doing it so he can continue to do because like i i still in my mind i don't know how much of what hal was saying i think him singing at the end is supposed to humanize him and anthropomorphize mm-hmm. him but like this could all just be psychological gambit he's playing to like well you know uh this guy's pulled my logic circuits out so what do i know about humanity and you know what can i do to make the sympathy and that's not the same as like a well like the a human what like a like a human yeah. emotion right and then the movie encourages you to ask yourself and and come to a conclusion yourself uh on that regard because yeah earlier in the movie when they're interviewing or who is it frank is watching an interview uh where they're talking about how and its creation and its functions mm-hmm. and all that and mm-hmm. they basically say as much right like well you know, we we've heard that it has human emotions and blah blah blah. Are those real human emotions or just the facsimile of human emotions? And he says, "Well, who could possibly tell, right? I, I don't. I'm not sure how you would tell." And so, 
as audience members, we should be sort of making that judgment for ourselves as we listen to it beg for its life. Yeah. Did you, the other thing that struck me when I was watching this 15 years later is how literally loose the, the plot is. Um, you have to kind of make some, I think, logical leaps, but leaps to get to different ports, uh, parts of the plot. Um, like, you know, the communication array and mm-hmm. the thing being faulty and like why that is. And then you have the intermission and now you've got a, an astronaut out in space and you don't know, like they, there's a couple points where I felt like there was some problems with that. For example, I don't understand why this guy spacewalks like from three football fields away to get to the antenna. Yep. That was like, my biggest a, question about it. Why not just pull right up to the thing? Yeah. And I almost like felt like I'd missed something. Like, did I need to rewind before the intermission? Um, because you know, like, did I miss something in the silent scene of them reading the lips? I was supposed to understand but no, it's just, I guess he was out there to replace the quote unquote faulty relay transmitter and how it t- takes control of his pod and attacks him with it. Also, um, why couldn't you do that with the pod? It seems like the ship is built to accommodate pod pod based manual operation. As we see it like open the airlock. Do, you can do most of that repair with the pod. Yeah. 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 Why also like why? there's a couple of things I thought were explained, but like, why does Dave go into the pod without a helmet? I, I think he just forgot. I think that's just a mistake on his part. Hmm. It's a, it's a big one. And I immediately noticed that I was like, the you are the, yeah. taking your life in your hands, man. Well, but has also thought it was um, the other thing. So as as wretchedly naive as the astronauts seem to just grant how personage, uh, mm-hmm. they also seem reactionary. The like, uh, the howl on the ground is saying that the, he doesn't predict the fault. The howling up here is saying he predicts the fault. And they're like, oh, huh. Meet me in the shuttle bay. Mm-hmm. This fucker's crazy. He's going to kill us all. Like, where did that come from? Yeah. What if the ground base howl is the crazy one? What if, you know, what if the ground base howl doesn't know the reality of uh, going through the Jupiter radiation belts? And it has like, I, I felt like because this movie is so much like just a, pastel watercolor of an impressionist thing that there is a couple of sloppy Joe kind of piece. Again, this is, this is probably the all time greatest science fiction film ever. Sure. But like there, there were a few things I wish, I guess if I was, if I had the the final edit, I could have uh, smoothed over for Kubrick. And I wonder, because that's the thing is like, does does he even consider those as flaws? Like the child's performance, Mm -hmm. like, uh, is hideously uh, stilted, and it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible line reading. Yeah, you and can I almost know, hear and see the person off screen feeding them the dialogue and the cues. And I know he's capable of getting moving performances out of children and and or terrorizing children to get them because mm-hmm. I've read the behind the scenes stuff for The Shining. So what the fuck happened there? Did he just not care, or is that a deliberate thing? And once you start asking your questions about that, it's like fucking. Where do you stop? Because I started thinking like. Well, maybe these aren't mistakes. Maybe these are all things that he is supposed to be using. To tell me subconsciously, but also maybe he just fucking made some mistakes. I don't know. Or, or he ran yeah. out of money and he, this thing was made at t- with $10 million, which quite a lot in 68, but still for what you got on the screen seems, seems like not a lot. Sure. So I, that's the thing. He's such a genius and he's reputation for tirelessly getting the shot that he wants makes me want to think that nothing is, 
an accident, but there's a couple things I just think are what you'd call flaws. Uh, okay, we got off track here somewhere because I definitely wanted to talk about artificial intelligence and the themes of this movie, but you have to talk about the end of this movie. Okay. And I think the end of this movie perplexes a lot of people. I think it perplexed me maybe both times I saw it before this. This time it felt pretty damn obvious, pretty straightforward, but that might be because of any reading or learning I've done on the movie in in the past 10 years since I saw it last. Uh, What's your interpretation of basically everything from getting to Jupiter on? Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I don't know what my original interpretation of seeing this movie was because I... Did I did I say this in the actual I so I grew up in this rural town in Indiana and our our library had exactly one shelf of science fiction books and I fucking read everything on there. And one of them was 2001 Damn. and another was 2010. And when there's a series, I was especially excited. Oh, wow. So I'd read both of these books and then I think 2010 came out in like 89, like. Okay. I saw 2010 before I saw 2001. That's why I didn't see 2001 until I was in my early 20s going back through the AFI. You know, it yeah. was, uh, oh, I'm, yeah. So I don't know what my initial thought of the thing was because it was informed by my reading of the books and seeing 2010 before I ever saw that. So all I can tell you now is the amalgamation of my own thoughts and what I've heard Kubrick say about it and what I've heard Clark right. say about it. And so do you, do you have something? That, yeah. I don't want to give that because it's kind of like cheating. What do you well, got? It, yeah. I mean, so I remember the first time I watched this, I must've been 17, maybe 18. It was right around like 99, 2000, somewhere in there. And I remember thinking I've just seen, one of the greatest movies ever made, but I couldn't actually give you any idea of what I thought it was about in the end. Uh, I just remember it being very affecting on an emotional level, um, like through its visuals. And then also I remember it thinking this has something important to say about humanity, but I don't know what it is. Now I think I understand what it is. And I think that thing is essentially that humanity has a long road ahead of it and a lot of challenges ahead of it. And if we are to face those challenges and overcome those challenges, we have to become something greater than we are right now. And if you look at this in the context of like Stanley Kubrick's work as like a whole body with things like Dr. Strangelove and his concern with weapons of mass destruction, uh, with nuclear weapons, that all starts to kind of make sense in context of his career, that this would be a sort of extension of that and that his fears for essentially nuclear holocaust drove him to say hey humanity we got to get our shit together and we have to get past this because if we don't it's the end of us i think that's uh uh exactly right in fact you probably already know this but like that bone dissolved the spaceship was supposed to be literally an allusion to a nuclear weapons platform in space which the united states and russia had not quite had not got together to sign a, a, a ban on with a, you know, a, a, against the proliferation oh, yeah, of nukes yeah. in space. 
as something was they a, did it, before. It, you're supposed to understand that bone, mankind's earliest weapon, was now transmuted into the ultimate weapon. And when the star in the book, when the star child, that's a literal thing. The star child is a literal like Dave. Dave becomes this thing. And it comes back to Earth, and as it enters Earth orbit, it like harmlessly detonates all of humanity's orbital defense platforms <laughs> to like essentially kind of give man a, a type of peace. And that's how the, yeah. the novel ends. And I guess they filmed all that. Mm-hmm. But then Kubrick said, you know, if I do this, everyone's going to bring in Dr. Strangelove and all this stuff about atomics. And I really want this to be about something besides that. So they removed all that stuff. I think but it's I a think good decision. That is that you're right because it gets much better to like kind of get the fact that humanity needs that has a long way to go that we're yeah. bar- barbarous savages compared to like any other probably enlightened species in the galaxy um, and you get you that know, point with the transformation of dave right you yeah you understand how insignificant the the technology is without having to make it you know our most powerful weapon uh I think it's a, it's a good decision all around. It it makes it more about like the the note isn't hey we need to get past you know this specific challenge. It's more like there's a lot out there that we don't understand yet, and in order to even approach that stuff, we have to develop rapidly. And I think that like um, there's a little bit of like Slaughterhouse Five that Vonnegut book because like that believe it or not. I thought that was a World War II memoir. It turns into a science fiction tale. Yeah, uh, I, I could remember it. I, yeah. I read this on a coast to coast flight once and I'm like, fucking A, Slaughterhouse Five. But there's a sequence in there where the protagonist uh, gets transported to an intergalactic zoo and like spends a lot of his natural life just in a room being observed by these aliens. Um, gotcha. And the aliens not knowing, under, not comprehending what they were doing to him any more than we comprehend, you know, taking a panda and flying it halfway around the world and observing it for our amusement. Um, and I think that I get that that's happening at the end, that mm-hmm. there's there's a two way exchange. The aliens are studying Dave and also preparing his brain and consciousness and body to to undergo this uh, rebirth into this new form of consciousness that continues to be explored in 2010. But wow. um, yeah, I, I think that I agree 100 percent with your interpretation, except for also there was like a mutual cultural exchange and. I hmm. guess another thing that's on the cutting room floor that got vaporized and, and the destruction at the end of the filmmaking was uh, Kubrick wanted to have aliens. He wanted there to be a contact or a close encounters moment where you see some humanoid. But like all the tests, uh, they had a I guess they had a meeting with Carl Sagan. He's like, look, if you're doing humanoid aliens, this, <laughs> you're is, already you know, you're, you, this is not the way a serious science fiction, the way you guys are talking like, you know, yeah. It would be it'd be you, 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 you're more you're better off concentrating on like some unfathomable alien intelligence. And that's what Kubrick was doing with all of the Because, mm-hmm. again, this is before special effects. This was all just him squirting chemicals between glass pa- plates and yeah. uh, dropping dyes and float tanks and fucking with CO2 gas and shit like that in, in front of a camera. But he's trying to like show what a human being and there's like you know like dave goes through all these different reactions like he's first he's like slack jawed and then he's like rapturous and then it looks like it's painful and scary Mm -hmm. like what would feel like for an alien civilization that's like three levels of evolution beyond us to like beam their message of truth and information right into your head yeah um and then study you to see what needs to happen what they need to do to get you to the next level and 
that's what that the last 15 20 minutes is 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 that process happening yeah i think you're right um the the strange place where like it intersects with artificial intelligence this movie intersects those two concepts but then doesn't do anything with those concepts to me was strange like because because mm. well i i mean i'm a i'm a person living in 2021 i've seen the path that uh technology has taken and the path that physical human evolution which is almost nothing in the grand scheme of things um has taken and and clearly the obvious way forward is the artificial intelligence not some star child physical uh transformation of humanity it's it's more about i mean it will be a physical transformation it'll just be from an informational perspective and that that to me is like the exciting thing about our future is that's happening so fucking fast, so much faster than we could ever hope to physically evolve. It, you know, some some space pod star child thing where we can traverse space uh, and maybe time that that would take eons, right? Um, for for humanity to evolve that way, but for a computer to do it and for humanity to do it through computers and information, yeah, we can do that in a matter of a few hundred years probably yeah maybe i don't i just don't know like because this is all pre-human singularity concept you know there was definitely a science yeah. fiction at the time that saw like a hybridization uh-huh. of of like you know, you'd have cyborgs or you'd have uh you know brains and these immortal engines and i've even read the uh, ray bradbury short stories about like human space exploration being essentially brains and probes that just swim through space and they recharge solar and like you know it's like is that that's post-human, right? But it's still a yeah. human brain. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're saying is like, you know, essentially that uh, we our give tools birth to a new us. species. Yeah, yeah, like our like the like the, the, the human uh, experience becomes uh, goes from analog to 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 uh, digital, yeah, and then never goes back. And I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if if because like you what you say about the evolution thing is like I don't know with like genetic engineering and stuff like maybe you could create you 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 could create some kind of like weirdo human life form that could pilot a spaceship or inhabit a you know some kind of vessel that like I I like I said I don't know if it's going to be purely potentially digital or if it's going to be cyborg or if we're you know like I I don't know I will we let that's the other thing is like, will we let the AI supplant us in that way or take over from us? Um, it's a good question. I mean, you can certainly boil that frog, I think with cybernetics and things like that to where yeah. humans might voluntarily jump into a computer, right. Or, or modify themselves to where they are essentially just probes with brains. And then why right. wouldn't we just also swap out the brain? And then people, I imagine there's people listening to a conversation that sees this as like just completely fucking horrifying. Um, sure. But like, you know, this is the Ooga Booga moment I'm, I talk about. Like, if you go back to those monkeys and say, in you know, 10 million years, you will live in a glass box 50 floors above the earth in a cubicle and you'll spend a third of your life there. <laughs> and then you'll never see. Like they, those monkeys probably blow their fucking brains out. Like what kind of fucking right. living existence is that, you know? But so like, yeah, disembodied brains and probes exploring the cosmos is pretty fucking weird. But like, is that just because we don't have any frame of reference? Maybe it feels cool to swim in the cosmos. Um, I, yeah, fuck, I don't know. Um, who, no one does. That's the crazy part. Yeah, no, I, I'm, 
excited to see what happens also, in the next 40, 50 years. Because here, here's an interpretation I've never seen about this movie, hmm. uh, and I just came up with it watching this last time. That like every single time we saw the monolith, there was a tribe that came out to meet it. Yeah, and there's a collective consciousness that absorbed its message, and that was the intent of the meeting of the third monolith. They mm-hmm. sent scientists and researchers and there's a whole crew but because of the machinations of how and all that it was a singular person do you think that there is something to that like the that there was a, a, a supposed to be a tribe coming together to experience this awakening and consciousness and instead it was gifted to a single person do you think there's anything significant to that hmm. i mean without going into like Christian allegory. <laughs> sure. Uh, I don't know. I hadn't considered it. But you're right. There that is an exception to the tribal rule. And it's like maybe that's because like the other things didn't transform the species this to this extent. And I'm wondering if like, you know, instead of like this being divided amongst five people or six people or whatever, if it just got all concentrated one person, it got weird or something. Um <laughs> Could be. Was did I did I clock the shining bathroom in this movie? I don't know if it's the shining bathroom, but I was definitely picturing the hotel. Yeah, that it hotel room with the woman that, in the tub. I I was expecting a scary corpse lady to yeah. come out of that bathtub, man. If it's not that bathroom, it looks so much like that bathroom. Um, that it it uh, is crazy. Um, I also thought it was wild that the alien's final challenge to Dave as he goes to uh, uh, the Stargate is to make him play simultaneous games of Guitar Hero <laughs> on maximum hard mode. <laughs> Didn't it look like that's the, like the, the it looked like the fretboard sliding towards him into a singularity? Okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, what was the what was the what was the final boss uh, song on uh, Guitar Hero? It was Ace of? Oh, it's probably like Dragon Storm or something. I. I thought or it was not the Dragon original Storm, was like uh, Ace of not Ace of Base or Ace of Spades. Uh, Ace of Spades, yeah. That Maybe. was like the 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 final boss match. There's some Dream Theater songs that were tough in that game. Uh, uh, oh, I wanted to ask you, um, what is the size of some of Jupiter's moons compared to Jupiter? Because there are a few shots here where clearly we're seeing Jupiter's moons, like Io and whatnot, but they're what I would assume is massive in relation to Jupiter because Jupiter is enormous. Is there a moon that's like a third of the size of Jupiter, which would be enormously bigger than Earth? No, no, no. I, I think it's a it's a forced perspective. Like they're approaching the Jovian I, I system, so. and like the moons are way in front of the camera. Because no, I think isn't the moon the largest moon of this uh, the solar system? Luna or whatever we call it, and that's not the moon. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Earth's moon. Earth's moon. It's bigger I, than like an Io or something. Uh, no, I guess not. I guess Io. I Io is slightly larger, and so is Callisto. Oh, several of these are Ganymede, huh. Callisto. Um, okay. is a little bit, but not like giant, like twice the size. Like uh, the radius of the moon is like seventeen hundred kilometers, and the biggest. Jovian satellite, the Ganymede is 2600. Okay. I was just not sure if they were doing forced perspective stuff there or if there was legit a moon that was like the third, a third the size of Jupiter, which would have blown my mind. Gotcha. Um, Yeah, no. Um, But uh, yeah, they had the shot of everything being in alignment, the conjunction of them all. 
like yeah. you said, it's so so cool. I do want to talk about I guess the the moon the the space station, the one thing we need to talk about is uh when we talk about the sets, the one that uh got a lot of um early awe from me is that big space station with the curved floor. So you're walking on the outside yeah. of the like that thing. I mean, I've seen like bases like this depicted a lot, but usually they're con- depicted conventionally. It's where it's like, you know, you're close in on actors, so you can't tell that the, you know, but this having a huge curved floor and ceiling um, and like all the furniture was subtly curved for it. And mm-hmm. just the idea that you have these Howard Johnson serving orange sherbet in space and Hilton hotels and all this stuff like it felt very real and plausible. And I just love that set, the stark white set with the blood red furniture. Yeah. Uh, which I guess Kubrick picked out, handpicked all the furniture for that thing. It's so fucking cool. Makes sense. Uh, did you know that Greg Nicotero is apparently a big fan of this movie so much so that he has built one to one? I think it's a one to one scale model of the EVA pod. And he showed it off at a museum exhibit, Museum of Science Fiction. Uh, Damn. Uh, something and back in 2018 uh yeah he's a big fan of this movie and prop making in general yeah it does surprise me like um adam savage big fan has done some replica plot props on this like i watched uh, yeah. a roundtable interview with like uh james cameron and steven spiel like this is so influential to just about every one of your mm-hmm. favorite filmmakers um you know like yeah like he this this is just if if it's science fiction at all yeah. or involves special effects like yeah this movie is is blazing a trail mm-hmm. um and it did blow people legit blow people's minds back then you know i mean it blows my mind today it it looks oh, so yeah. good it looks so much crisper and cleaner than really any any sci-fi i've seen since yeah i mean there's like i said there are some effects that don't quite work there's just a few like i said maybe 10% out of the shots are a little you know, you can you can see the seams, but so much of this movie is just rock solid. And all, all again, I don't think it'll it'll age like if it hasn't aged in 50 years. I, I don't I mm-hmm. can't imagine because, again, it's it's shot in a way that feels more like a documentary or yeah. like, you know, actual footage from a space flight than it does something that's a Hollywood that's trying to, you know. We like I said, weave through asteroids or fight a space battle <laughs> it's just people working and living in space and it feels it feels very real yep i think that's oh well there's actually a couple things that uh, dr john had for us to clean up at the end uh calls it the lightning round um the most underrated kubrick film uh he says i still think pass the glory is the greatest world war one movie ever made um here's the thing I'm not an expert in Kubrick films. Me either. So the one that I like, I, I couldn't tell you what an underrated because everyone that I've seen has any massive legend and has more or less completely fulfilled my expectations with the one example, a uh, contra example of, of Barry Lyndon. But that is certainly not underrated. It's, it is not underrated. If I yeah. would say it's anything, I would say it's overrated, but it's over. Yes, I would agree. And I'm not saying that like, uh, yeah, background on that is we, that was going to be one of our bald move prestige movies. And we saw, we talked to each other like, did you like that film? No. Did you like the film? No. All right. Well, why do we want to spend an hour shitting on a Stanley Kubrick film? 
and I, I, I wouldn't even shit on it. It's just not for me, yeah. except for maybe if you see it as like a, almost a, a very highbrow Monty Python, maybe that's how you're supposed to appreciate it. But yeah, that that's the one that uh, the only Kubrick film that I've saw that I didn't immediately get its greatness. Although the cinematography, I immediately yeah. got like how beautiful the film is, but I don't know that it looks any better than this does. That's the thing. Like, yes, he's doing some incredible things with photography, but he does, he does that in every, in every movie. movie. Yeah. I can't think of a movie of his that looks anything less than and amazing. I would love to go back and watch Spartacus. Cause I remember Spartacus is just like a regular old movie movie that he made. Like very, you know, I haven't like, seen it that. seems indistinguishable from classic Hollywood films of its era. You know, that's earlier in his career. Um, yeah. when he's a little bit more beholden to the studios perhaps mm-hmm. um, but like yeah I'm trying to think like what is the but like, you know it's been like since I was 23 since I saw that so no, um, I, I, I will say that that's one of my ongoing projects is I want to see more of Stanley Kubrick's films that are kind of off off the regular menu you know, yeah. everyone's seen The Shining everyone's mm-hmm. seen Eyes Wide Shut everyone's seen 2001 Doctor Strangelove um and and that's you know that's that's about where the shining that's about where like i've i've stopped with him so yeah same here i haven't seen his lesser known stuff so i've not seen anything that's underrated uh it says least favorite i don't think i'm smart enough to appreciate lolita uh there again like my least favorite is barry linden but i haven't seen yep. lolita um that seems like it could be a, a fuck bucket full of cringe too <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I, I just, I'm just a little, I'm not serious enough about McCubrick to, to say that, uh, I've got a, a least favorite other than again, Barry Lyndon, uh, Kubrick versus Spielberg. I've lost so many friends over this one. Just kidding. But seriously, I wonder, uh, yeah. So who do you put over? Um, they're apples and oranges. I mean, Kubrick is, is a a filmmaker. Steven Spielberg is an entertainer. I, I don't, they're not the same thing to me. But that's also that's also damning Spielberg yeah. with pretty fucking faint praise because he's made a couple of, of fucking films. Sure. Uh, as well. Um, no doubt. I mean, I, I have not just, seen his fucking films, though. I feel like I haven't seen uh, Schindler's List. So what am I going to do? I think I think I think, um, you know, Spielberg is a human filmmaker and he collaborates with people mm-hmm. and that puts him like. Kubrick are more works of singular genius where Spielberg is, you know, has a style. He knows what he's looking for. He's got his, you know, his, his own moves and shots named after him. Um, but they're just, yeah, they're completely, I guess Kubrick is the more interesting filmmaker. I mean, you have to say that. Yeah. You have to say that. Like, but I will I was will say there is almost no mood in which I would prefer to watch a Kubrick movie over a Spielberg movie. Yeah, I have to be right. in a very specific mindset to watch his movies as opposed to Spielberg, which I can enjoy pretty much any time. Right. So right. you rank um, it. Where does that put it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there's also some Spielberg. Like I have to be in a particular mood to see like uh, Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan. But like yeah, Indiana Jones, right. la, you know, right. Tipple, or not Tipple of Doom, uh, uh, Raiders. Fuck, throw that on anytime. Sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm digging it. E.T. War of the Worlds, way. Jurassic yeah. Park. I mean, there are a million of his movies I can watch any given moment. 
Um, I know how you guys love ranking things. Let's try an easy one. Top five artists of all time, Western culture edition. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Sure. Hit Mozart, Shakespeare, Michelangelo, Kubrick, Lennon, McCartney, Michelangelo, uh, Mozart, Shakespeare, Kubrick, this is McCartney. The definitive list. You better yep. be listening and writing it down. I did it. It's done. I mean, okay. First of all, Michelangelo only because he's Italian. <laughs> We're comparing playwrights to composers to Renaissance sculptors and painters that have stayed re- culturally relevant for hundreds of years to like to the all Beatles? three of these guys. Yeah, no, like ask Come me on. in 200 years, except for I won't care because I'll be dead. Mm-hmm. Like it's entirely possible that no one has heard of Stanley Kubrick in 200 years. Sure. Like culturally, I find that very hard to believe you could say the same about Shakespeare and Mozart and but I find it likely that you could say that about the Beatles so that they will be around that they won't that but, no yeah, one no, has heard I, of I them in 200 years yeah that's what I'm saying like we have no idea the shit that's going to stick around right now because some of the stuff that we consider classic was considered trashy pop shit mm-hmm. like Shakespeare shit was not well regarded like from the cultural elite of his day that's true of the Beatles as well exactly so like it's it's impossible it's impossible to say like mm-hmm. I'd have a hard time ranking top five composers, let alone ranking them amongst all these other disciplines. So, I did sorry. it. It took me 10 seconds. You're right. And Jim's got the, yeah. the definitive one. Uh, you also want to know if we've heard Stanley Kubrick's interview here with a Japanese journalist exp- uh, explaining the ending of the film. I'd love to hear if this affects your appreciation of the film. Um, the, I had seen, so like, I'd never seen this interview before, but I've s- heard it alluded to. So like none of this mm-hmm. was new information. And I also wonder if like Kubrick is slightly disarmed by the language barrier because normally he's got an answer for people wanting to know the meanings of the endings of his film. And it's fuck you. I'm not doing your homework for you, (laughs) essentially. Uh, Or I don't want to trample anyone's interpretation of my art. Uh, But here he was like really candid about both. um, This movie uh, and uh, the shining 2001 and the shining. And it's like, well, you know, I've never, I've, I've always refused to answer, but you're a very sincere uh, Japanese man. Who's I, I, what am I going to do tell you to, I don't know how to say that. And and so here's, here's am I going to tell your whole country to go fuck itself? That's, that's (laughs) not for me. Yeah. So, so he did. Um, and he essentially, I think gave the interpretation we've talked around, which is, you know, Dave met, went through a wormhole and met a super intelligence that studied him his entire life that was to him like a blink of an eye and then recreated him into this thing known as the star child which has who knows what like what kind of capa- capacities over humankind and you know the symbol is uh, yeah. so like that's kind of how i had thought about the film because the second time i remember the first time i watched it i just like wow that was a fucking wild movie and yeah. I can see why it's on the AFI top 100. The second time I'm like, I fucking want answers. I remember <laughs> the like, it, this I was, was too fucking high to, to understand. Any of it. I was just impressed I, by it visually. Yeah. Yeah. The second time I watched 2001, I, I started doing re this is before bald move, but I, but I started doing research and started getting answers. And I think at that point is where I started seeing like, you know, these interviews and stuff talked about. Yeah. I can't remember if I had, Maybe I went down a rabbit hole when I was researching Barry Lyndon and ended up around somewhere near this interview because it did seem very clear to me the ending of this movie this third time. 
Whereas, I, and I couldn't tell you why it was like so much more clear if I'm just better at reading the visual language of film after 10 years of analyzing that probably it. probably helps, yeah. Probably helps exposure. a little bit. Like I said, like... Or I, if I had I, seen I, this somewhere in those 10 years. The the plot of Godfather 2 just kind of, I, I learned by osmosis the, between the third and fifth time. I'm like, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah. I get it. This is why he's pissed at his brother. Um... But yeah, I, I kind of felt like it, it really congealed too because I, you know, the other thing is like probably over the last five years, we've gotten three or four kind of Kubrick pieces of memorabilia. Well, I forget who, right? but a couple of Christmases ago, we got the like Kubrick collection, which is this kind of like big thing of like all of like Kubrick's research material for stuff. And I remember I've, I haven't read that cover to cover, but I thumbed through it a lot. So between all the shit that touches on 2001 as its influence, all the film criticism I've read in the last 10 years, these books that people have given us, the discussions around Kubrick and about Kubrick mm-hmm. that we've been, you know, because we've, how, how many Kubrick pods have we got now? We got The Shining, uh, Strange Love, 2001. We essentially least. did Barry Lyndon. I did, I did a bunch of research on Barry Lyndon before same, we yeah. didn't podcast it, it because I it wanted just, to try and figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would just be us talking about why we didn't like it and who the hell wants that. Right. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, I hope you enjoyed the, the podcast we made, Dr. John. Um, it's one of those things where I sat down like, Jesus Christ, what can we say about this film that hasn't already been said? Because it's one of the most studied and, and talked about films of all time. But uh, I don't think we blaze much new new ground here. But no. uh, this is this is everything I thought about the film anyway. Um, but thank you so much for your commission. Really appreciate this one. I had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I've been looking for an excuse to go back and see some of these Kubrick films and uh, just got another one under the belt. So thank you again, Dr. John, for your support. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to commission a podcast, if you'd like to see what we think about two-ish hours of your favorite media, could be a couple television shows, uh, could be a movie, could be a couple hours of video game. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, all you got to do to find out if it's a project for you is go to support.baldmove.com, scroll down a bit, click on the commission of podcast, and you will see full information. You can see the queue to see how many projects are ahead of you in line. All the information you want is right there. Support.baldmove.com. Once again, thank you, Dr. John. Uh, stay safe out there trying to, to save people from themselves. And uh, we'll see you on another commission podcast real soon. <laughs>